morning. Glad to be in the presence of God. Glad to be with one another. It's a great day. It's a kind of cloudy outside, but that's okay. God's still going to do great things. I wanted to, um, as we start this morning, uh, just continue to call our attention to our theme this year for 2017, which is generational lift. Yes, we're reclaiming the vision of Jesus to make disciples of all nations, and we're resetting evangelistic expectations for each one of our generations in the church. So for the teens, they have different evangelistic expectations than the campus, right? The campus, different evangelistic expectations than the young professionals. The young professionals, different expectations than the marrieds, amen? And the marrieds different from the empty nesters. We're all unified about the mission, right? But living out the mission uh, definitely is going to look different for each one of our generations or life stages. And so that's what we're focused on this year. Um, If you've not got the chance to, I encourage you to listen to Ed's lesson that he did at the Bible Talk Leaders Retreat um, last weekend, I think, in Richmond. You can find that at the church website, www.hamptonroads.com forward slash lift. And I think you get a great perspective there on the direction that we're trying to go in and what we're trying to do. Now, in line with that, we are um, making some subtle, slight changes. Um, Nothing big, nothing dramatic, nothing that's going to, you know, make you lose your breath or anything like that. But uh, Matt and I have chosen to work more closely together with one another. For one thing, Um, you're going to be hearing Matt preaching a whole lot more. Which is an awesome thing because Matt's a great preacher, great teacher too if you were here for the Troas night. I'm going to be leaning on uh, Matt's gifts and talents and we're going to be um, sharpening each other and helping each other to grow and being able to help the church to blossom and to flourish. Amen. The other thing is our young uh, professional ministry. We Yes. Now. We've mentioned it. You've heard YoPro, YoPro, and what is YoPro and all that stuff. Let me just try to define it a little bit more so that we know what we're talking about. The Young Professional Ministry, or YoPro for short, is the formal, former singles ministry. Same people, but we have so many of them that are getting married. We said, well, let's keep those younger married couples without children in the singles ministry or now the YoPro ministry. And we're doing that for a a few reasons. One, it helps and keeps our young married couples um, outward and active evangelistically. We felt like it was uh, a little bit too much of a jump for the young married couples to instantly come with the more mature, established married couples with older children. It it can be kind of a, a, a jump. So we decided to not do that. Uh, We wanted the um, younger singles to continue to have people to look up to that are around them and with them all the time. Um, It also reduces the brain drain from the from the young professional or singles ministry. These guys who are now getting um, married, they're the ones who have come up through the singles and they kind of know how the ministry runs and works and functions and what to look out for. We thought it'd be best for them to stay with them so that experience can stay within the ministry. And then lastly, the uh, you might be thinking, but how will those young married 
marriages get taken care of? How will they get help? Because we all know when you get married, you got a lot of drama to, to fix and to work through. But um, what we decided to do is have a young married fellowship on a monthly basis. From what I understand, it was Jeremiah's idea that we do something about Jeremiah and Leah together because they're married. They're one flesh now. So it was their idea together, and Reggie and Deb have helped to really push that idea forward. So we had our first Young Marrieds Fellowship last night, actually, and it was a really good time. The vast majority of the Young Married couples were out. Matt and Katie won a, a gift card to the movies, right? They did. So they're going to be enjoying that. So anyway, we... Fair, oh, they won it fair and square. That's right, fair and square. <laughs> and so um, that's the young professional ministry. Obviously, we'll be hearing more and more about that as we move forward. Our um, The other thing that we're doing is our midweek breakout lessons. You're way ahead in the slide deck. You should just be on generational lift right now. But um, the other thing that we're doing is for our midweek services... Um, where each generation is going to be breaking out on a weekly basis. So two weeks ago, the campus broke out. Last week, the teens broke out. This upcoming week, the young professionals are breaking out. And each one of those um, times that they break out, the lesson is going to be geared and focused towards, again, what does this faithful evangelistic expectation look like for your generation? Amen? So those are some of the things that we're doing. Um, obviously, we're going through Genesis as well, beginning in 2017. Um, because the book of Genesis really is broken down into um, 12, uh, 12 generations. And so we decided it'd be great to, to study that out in Genesis. So there you go. Awesome. <laughs> so open up your Bibles with me, please, to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Come on, Tony. And Genesis 3 is a continuation of what we read, obviously, in Genesis 2 last week. Genesis 2 and 3 form one kind of narrative element in the book of Genesis, but we broke them up for the sake of time. It's kind of hard to preach two at the same time. So uh, Genesis was written to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land and to want to answer questions of origins, origins of creation, origins of man, origins of the heavens, origin of marriage origins of pain and suffering and Israel would have needed answers and they would have needed hope for the challenges that they were about to face as they entered the promised land. And so in this uh, fallen world that we live in, it's full of sadness, um, injustice and disaster. Even we still look for hope and we find that hope in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so Matt did a great job last week of presenting the picture of paradise before the fall. And I'm tasked with presenting the picture of paradise after the fall. It's not as nice of a picture, but we do serve a good God in whom we can always find hope. And even as we look at the bleak consequences of sin in this world, uh, there are a few shimmering rays of light and mercy from God as they make themselves known this morning, because God is still gracious and merciful, even as he punishes sin. And that's the big thought this morning. God is gracious and merciful, even as he punishes sin. John Milton, a poet from the mid 1600s, wrote an incredibly long and epic poem on the events surrounding the, the fall of man in the Garden of Eden titled Paradise Lost. 
He wanted to trace the cause of the fall and its result on mankind as a way of justifying or making sense of God's behavior towards man. If you can get through the Shakespearean English, it's like reading the King James Version of the Bible. If you can get through that, um, it's actually not a bad read. So I would encourage you to to at least try to read it. But if you don't get to it, just read Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 and you'll get the gist. So anyway, the title of our lesson this morning is Paradise Lost. Let's go ahead and pray. I do want to bring to our attention... Um, Kevin Maines is an evangelist in the Los Angeles church, and he was playing uh, playing a racquetball, I think, and he he had a heart attack. Um, I think this happened yesterday. Unfortunately, he's still unconscious and they they cannot perform surgery until he regains consciousness. So his brother, Stuart, is asking all the churches to pray for his father, that his father would regain consciousness, that they would be able to to perform their surgery and that he would be able to. To be healed. Amen? Amen. So let's pray at this time. Um, Our great and heavenly Father, our King, we revere you, Father, because we know that you're holy. We love you, Father, because you are love. And God, we respect you because you discipline us as we deserve, Father, and, and according to your will and according to your righteousness. Father, where would we be without you, without your loving hand, without your Holy Spirit to guide us and to protect us and to point us in the right direction every day of our lives? We would really be lost, Father, but we're so glad that you left the 99, that you came and you found every single one, individual, one of us to bring us back into the flock, Father. Thank you so much for caring for us and for loving us. We pray that as we Uh, read Genesis this morning as we read the account of the fall of man, that we would be a sober, that we would be humbled at the the devastating effects of sin in our lives and how it can tear apart our relationship with you. May we never get close to it or near it, Father, but we're certainly grateful that you've forgiven us of it. We do pray for Kevin Maines. Uh, We pray that he would regain consciousness, God, as he's in the hospital we pray that the surgery that the doctors perform um, on his heart would, uh, would, would, would clear up his, his blood vessels and his blood passages, that blood would continue to flow to every part of his body, that he would be restored to full health and to be able to continue to preach your word. Father, we thank you again for your love in our lives, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Genesis chapter 3. We're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. And it begins, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Wow. Well, like any great story, there are scenes in this story, three major ones that we'll look at this morning. One, the deception, two, the fall, and three, the consequences. The deception, the fall, and the consequences. In verse one of Genesis two, I'm sorry, looking at verse one from Genesis two, we're left with this beautiful picture of Adam and Eve in paradise. They're there, water is springing up from the ground, things are growing all over the place. It's incredible, fruit is just like falling on them, falling into their mouths. I mean, it's just an awesome picture. Adam finally founds his mate, it's not found amongst the animals, but God finds a mate from his rib. And when Adam sees his wife, he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's fired up that the woman has been made and now he is complete. The Bible says that they were both naked and they felt no shame. However, in chapter three, verse one, the story takes a not so beautiful turn. There's a new um, person or entity that's introduced into the story. The antagonist who is the serpent. He is introduced into the story And not only is he introduced, but he is crafty. You can go to my next slide. He is crafty. And the next one after that. Thank you. He is crafty. And the serpent speaks. He talks. 
Now, I mean, the donkey spoke in the Bible, right? So I guess it's not so far-fetched that an animal would speak. But he engages the woman in dialogue. Why does he choose the woman? Because he knows that men don't like to talk. So he says, I'm not going to try to talk to the guy. Let me talk to the woman. But why would Satan want to talk to the woman at all? Why would he have any interest in speaking to her? Why does he care about manipulating Eve? Let me just kind of pull back some of Satan's ploys and some of his schemes. It wasn't about Eve. It's not that he cared so much about who this woman was and he really just wanted to take her out. Like he had some kind of a personal agenda against her. It wasn't about Eve. His ultimate goal was to get back at God. Satan had been cast out from heaven. Satan hates the Lord God. And so he wants to do anything that he can to get back at God. Now, God is all powerful and Satan has no power or control over him. So Satan can't do anything to God directly. And so the next best thing is to go after those that God loves. His creation, his people. And so by harming his children, Satan believes that he can also harm God. And so he attacks us by trying to separate us relationally because he knows that we're weaker when we're apart than when we're together. He separates God from his children. He separates husband from wife, siblings from one another, children from parents. He separates in-laws. He separates relatives. He separates friends. He separates even brothers and sisters in Christ. That's his plan. And once we're on our own, he takes the kill shot. And he gets us to turn against God and to reject him. It's not personal against you. It's not personal against me. We're not even the objective. We're just pawns in the game. We're casualties of war. His goal is the Lord. And so that's why he starts in and gets to work on Eve. The first order of business, attack the marriage. Immediately, he begins to sow seeds of doubt and confusion between the woman and her husband. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That wasn't an attack against God. That was an attack against Adam. Why is that? Because he's saying, did God really say that? Eve doesn't know what God really said. Eve wasn't created when God gave the command to Adam. Adam was created. God told Adam. Adam had to then go and tell Eve. So Eve is walking around. I shouldn't be touching that tree in the middle of the garden. But the only reason why she knows is because her husband told her. And so Satan says, did God really say that? In other words, is your husband communicating with you properly? You know how those men are. You know how they are always leaving stuff out. Like they don't even talk about the details. Always getting it wrong. You know what happened the last time you sent him to the grocery store, right? He came back with the wrong thing. And he always does that. Eve, he might be doing that to you again. That's the point. Separate Eve from her husband. The command was not to eat from one specific tree. The tree of... I don't know what I wrote there. Anyway, <laughs> Satan messes it up here. He says, you must not eat from any tree. It must, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
I think I did say that right. <laughs> the command wasn't that they couldn't eat from any tree. The command was that they couldn't eat from the tree in the middle. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the serpent's tone is, you may not have the most accurate information. And he's getting the woman to doubt her husband's reliability. Now, you know, instead of ignoring this talking lizard, the woman engages the serpent in conversation and corrects him. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And then she passes along what was probably, in my opinion, Adam's embellishment. I don't think she embellished. I think she was just doing what she was told, what she knew. I think Adam embellished it. And she said, and you must not touch it or you will die. And so the conversation between Eve and Adam probably went something like this. They're in the garden. They're working. They're plowing the ground or whatever they were doing at the time. And and Adam says, honey, you see that tree over there? Just don't touch that, okay? And he goes back to working. (laughs) And his wife says, why? God said so. Keeps right on working. (laughs) But what did he say? I just told you. (laughs) Right on working. But give me the details. (sighs) Well, he told me, but when did he tell you? Give me the details. (sighs) Right after he put me to work in the garden. But do you like gardening? Honey, that's not the point. (laughs) Well, what is the point, Adam? Can you just listen? He told me that we could eat from any tree in the garden, but that we can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. So just don't touch it, okay? Well, what happens if I do? You're going to die. Come on, let's keep working. That's probably how it went down, okay? I wasn't there, but I would assume that's how it happened. And so Eve, that's what she tells the serpent. We can eat from the trees in the garden. We just can't eat from the one in the middle. And if we do, we're going to die because that's what she got from her husband. And so in verse four, instead of asking another subtle question, Satan now launches his second attack. And it's a full assault. And he tells a bold faced lie. You will not certainly die. And then he backs up his lie with the reason that now separates her, not just from her husband, but now it's the separation from God. He undermines God and his goodness. See, God doesn't really have what's best for you in mind, Eve. You will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God only wants what's best for him. He doesn't want what's best for you. And you can just hear the bitterness coming out of Satan's heart because this is how Satan feels towards God. He's hogging all the glory. He doesn't want anybody to share in that glory with him. He doesn't want anybody else to be as he is and no good and evil. See, Eve, he doesn't really love and care for you. He's just a selfish dictator trying to control your life and tell you what to do all the time. That's the seed that he plants between Eve and God. 
And as he does, he gets her on her own relationally, separates her from her husband, separates her from God. And this is what he does to us. He attacks our relationships. He separates us, gets us on our own. And then it's just a matter of time until we give into discouragement because we don't have the spouse or the boyfriend or the girlfriend that we want. Just a matter of time until we give in to fear about what could happen in the future. Desire for something we don't have or bitterness from a past hurt. And then we rebel and we launch our own attack against God and we say, fine then. You don't give me what I want. I won't give you what you want. I won't give you glory. I'll do what I want to do. And we take matters into our own hands. What do we do about this? We have to be aware of Satan's schemes. This is how he works. We've got to be alarmed by it when we see it happening. When we begin to drift away from God, the sirens need to start going off. What? 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 Right? Like, alert! Get up! Something bad is happening here. Satan is trying to separate you from your father. When we drift away from our brothers and sisters or our spouses, same thing. This is why it's so important that we are not in the habit of missing meetings of the body. That's why it's so important that we're together because Satan wants us on our own. It's in those times at home, on the job when you could or perhaps should be meeting with the meetings of the body, but you choose to stay home instead. Now, some of us have very good reasons for doing that. Car broke down, ill health, whatever it is. Amen. No problem. But there's other situations when we very well could be meeting with the body, but we simply choose not to. And that's exactly, he's like, I got you now. I got you now. Sit in front of that television. Let me tell you some lies. Let me separate you from God. And we miss it. We've got to guard against bitterness. That happens when we're not with each other, when we don't talk to each other. Bitterness grows and it separates. And so we've got to fight for unity and closeness with God and each other. This is how we fight the deception. Scene two, the fall. Now this is a... uh, Next slide, sorry. This is a... What do you think this is? A cashew, that's right. That's a cashew. Now the reason why I put this up here... Because y'all were expecting me to put an apple up there, weren't you? A nice shiny apple. The Bible does not say that the fruit was an apple. But since we're so self-centric... And apple is a very common and even favorite fruit in the United States. We just figure that the forbidden fruit must have been an apple. You know, in the Caribbean, they think that the forbidden fruit was a mango. (laughs) Dead serious. And you know, in Singapore, they think the forbidden fruit is a durian. This is is a nasty fruit. Don't ever eat a durian, okay? (laughs) Don't ever eat it. But each culture, depending upon what their favorite or national fruit is, they... Just think, well, that must be the forbidden fruit. So I just threw a cashew up there just to kind of get us off track here, okay? It could have been any fruit. We don't know what it was. 
But anyway, the cashew, another reason I put the cashew up there is because every um, Sunday in Trinidad, they would come and they would bring me fruit. And every week it was a different fruit because we were like new and they're like, well, try this fruit, try that fruit. And they're just bringing all kinds of fruit. So they brought a cashew one day. I did. I was like, what in the world is this thing? And um, I took it home and I started to chew on it. It's kind of rubbery, um, but it does taste sweet. And I said, well, let me look up how to eat a cashew because I had learned that you don't just kind of just start eating fruit in Trinidad because worms could jump out of it. Who knows? So I look up cashew fruit and, and I was just about to bite off that bottom piece there because that's where the cashew is. The cashew is actually a seed. It's not a nut. It's not like peanuts. Peanuts grow in the ground. These grow off of trees. But I was just about to bite into it because I'm like, hey, I want to eat some cashew nut. And I read on the internet that there's actually cyanide inside of there. It will poison you and it will make your, your skin peel off of your lips and your fingers when you get that stuff on you. And I'm like, the church gave me this. What is going on here? But they did that to me like every Sunday. They come with like... Try this one, Tony. <laughs> Walk away laughing. <laughs> See how we get him this time. Anyway, Eve, as she, as she ponders, as she considers, I'm in verse 6 now, she ponders and considers this fruit and everything Satan has told her, she's thinking, hmm, maybe he's right. Fruit is good for food. And it sure do look good. And, and why should I be denied the chance to be like God? You see how serp, the serpent knocks out her defenses and gets her mind to go down a certain track? He got her on her own and the two compelling reasons for her not to eat. One, the command. Two, the consequence the serpent lies about. God's command is bad because his motives are bad. Don't listen to that. And the consequences won't actually happen to you. Have you ever felt that before? Well, I, I know that I'm not supposed to be doing this because da 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 happens, but that ain't gonna happen to me, right? I'm different. And then you do it and then it happens to you and you feel dumb, right? <laughs> but she rationalizes all this stuff. She rationalizes the sin and then she eats. And this is how we think. If you want to do something bad enough, and if you can find reasons to overcome the objections, then the mind begins to go downhill until it leads to the ultimate action. And so she gives some to Adam, who the Bible says was with her, verse 6. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So what was that about? They're in the garden working or doing whatever they're doing. The husband is with her. The servant's like, Psst. you know, that, that's why they go, Psst. hey, Eve, did, did God really, he strikes up this conversation. Is this a conversation that Adam overheard? Did he overhear it and just didn't say anything about it? I would hope not. Or did he just not hear it because he was so tuned out? Just so busy, so focused on his work that he wasn't paying attention to his wife? I don't know what was going on, but this is probably one of the most tragic verses in the Bible. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
Wow. They threw off God's kingship. They threw off his reign. They threw off his love. They threw off his command. And regardless of how the serpent deceived and tempted, Adam and Eve were still responsible for their sin. They made their choice. The wild thing, and I'm going to talk to the husbands here. The wild thing is that their eyes weren't even opened until Adam ate. Did you notice that? That the woman eats. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, why didn't her eyes get opened at that point? Her feel shame, realize she's naked and say, Adam, no, stop. Don't eat this. You know, like, oh, I'm melting, you know. Why didn't that happen? She ate the fruit. She probably was like, tastes pretty good, Adam. Check it out. Adam's like, hmm, I know I'm not supposed to be eating this fruit because God told me not to eat it. But she just ate it. Nothing happened to her. She said it tastes pretty good. All right, I guess I'll check it out too. It's not until he eats, then the eyes of both of them are opened. Now that has some serious ramifications and implications for us as husbands. Although Eve ate first, sin entered the world through Adam. He's held responsible because he received the command from God and he was the leader of his family. It was his responsibility for making sure that the command got obeyed. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Romans 5.19 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. You say, Tony, what about 1 Timothy 2? And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. It's true. Adam wasn't deceived like Eve. He wasn't tricked. He knew full well what he was doing when he ate. But sin entered the world through him, not through her. Thirdly, while Adam uh, was there, while the serpent was talking to Eve, again, the Bible says that he was with her. Well, why didn't he rebuke the serpent? Like, hey, stop talking to my wife, man. Go back to do your own thing. We're doing something over. I, I don't know. Why didn't he? Do something. Why didn't he get the shovel and like chop the serpent in half or or something? Why didn't he say, honey, come on, honey. Come on, let's talk. Come talk to me. Talk to me instead of talking to him. Now, husbands, you know what it's like to talk. Some of us, a small minority of us as husbands love to talk. The vast majority of us as husbands myself included, don't like to talk, okay? We can be passive, we can be checked out, we can be asleep at the wheel, all the while our wives are talking to the serpent, being deceived by the serpent. Eve sinned first, but sin entered the world through Adam because as a husband, his passive leadership let his wife go astray. And then he followed along in disobedience. So brothers, we've got to courageously take the God-given responsibility to lead our wives. We've got to watch out for them. We've got to protect them from error, protect them from deception. 
We've got to be engaged emotionally and connected with them emotionally. Now listen, I do not stand in judgment of any husband or brother here, okay? Because I know that it is hard for me to be emotionally connected and engaged, in particular, consistently with my wife. So it's a challenge for me as much as it's a challenge for anybody else. Amen? But a challenge nonetheless. If Adam would have been engaged with her, maybe the serpent wouldn't have held her attention. Maybe. Last point, the consequences. The consequences. Things begin to unravel after that. Instead of being naked and feeling no shame, they realize they are naked. And they make fig leaf coverings for themselves. Instead of enjoying God's company, they begin to hide from God. And the hound of heaven, who is the Lord, who's always concerned and searching for man, goes looking for Adam and asks, where are you? God is always looking for us. Always reaching out for us. And being the leader and the one who received the command, God confronts Adam first. Adam confesses in verse 12. But his confession is stained by his blame shifting. The woman you put here with me. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) Adam, why'd you eat the fruit? Well, Lord, I mean, if it wasn't for you putting this woman here with me, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. So he blames shifts, blames God, blames Eve for his sin. He goes to the woman, confronts her. She's no better. She blames shifts too. It's the serpent's fault. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And to this day, we hate to take responsibility for our actions. It's always somebody else's fault or wasn't me, right? When we sin, sure, others may have played a part in influencing our decision. But again, we cannot blame it on anyone except for ourselves. And then God begins to dish out the consequences. God is just and they're held accountable for their behavior. We may think that we're getting away with things, but God's got our number. And in verse 14, the servant is the first one to get his. He's the only, I don't want to say person, but entity, I guess, who was actually cursed. He says that he will crawl on his belly. Perhaps the serpent wasn't a snake like I had it before. Perhaps he was like a a, a salamander, right? Like on his hind legs. He may have already had limbs. And God says, now I'm going to take away your limbs. You're just going to crawl around on your belly. I don't know. He says you're going to eat dust. He says there's going to be enmity between the serpent and... And it's your offspring and the woman's offspring, the, the Hebrew word there is seed. And again, viewed by itself, this chapter is pretty depressing and it leaves little hope. But we here we actually find some redeeming value in verse 15. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is widely seen as a messianic prophecy pointing to the time when the seed of the woman in Jesus Christ will crush the head of Satan while his own heel is struck at the cross. The woman gets her punishment. 
And for the woman and for the man, God strikes them in the areas that are most sensitive, most valuable, most important to them. For the woman, it's marriage and family. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Was she already having children before that? Don't know. Could be. But with painful labor, you will give birth to children. The thing that brings a woman so much joy, bearing children, is now done with much pain. And then he moves on and says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The woman was created to complete her husband, created to help her husband. Brothers, that's uh, husbands. Rather, that's what our wives are trying to do. They're trying to help us, believe it or not. It doesn't feel that way many times, but they are trying to help us. That's what they were created to do. But instead of a harmonious marriage, the relationship now becomes a power struggle with the woman wanting to lead, but not having the God-given authority. The NET translation does a good job of bringing this verse out and it says, you will want control, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. Adam gets his. He's hit in the gut through what gives him his value and his worth, his work. Curse is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Work for Adam, while fruitful, eventually is frustrating now. And it's labor intensive. Not only that, but the serpent's words are exposed for the lie that they were. The serpent said, you will not surely die, but Adam now is sentenced to die. Not immediately, but eventually. Romans 6, the wages of sin is what? Death. Before the fall, everything is very good. After the fall, everything's corrupted. Work becomes wearisome. Nature becomes natural disaster. Marriage gets messed up. And like we said on Friday night, purity becomes pornography. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. These are the effects of sin. Verse 21, God is still gracious. This is another glimmer of hope. He doesn't make them die immediately. They continue living. As a matter of fact, Adam lives 930 some odd years. Not only that, but to prepare them from being banished from the garden because the environment or the, 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 the whatever was the, whatever was happening outside of the garden, it wasn't like it was inside the garden. Inside the garden was nice. Outside of the garden wasn't so nice. And so God gives them animal skin clothing to protect them. God's like, still, like, I know I just punished you, but I care for you. Let me give you some clothes because it's going to be real rough out there. <laughs> Let me just help you out a little bit here. They're stopped from eating anymore from the tree of life. And as the cherubim with the flaming swords guards the tree, Adam, Eve, and all mankind are prevented from living forever. It's assumed that what would have allowed them to be immortal was them continuing to eat from this tree of life. But now that they cannot eat from the tree of life, they are now sentenced to death. The passage sadly ends with paradise being lost as they're banished from Eden and forced to work the ground to eat. These are the consequences of sin and rebellion against God. 
Israel would have taken it as a warning the first time they read it. But God and those who are his win in the end. And they would have taken hope in these small mercies of God that we've talked about this morning. For us, even during the darkest times, there's hope through Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, Romans 5 says, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus came to reverse the curse through one righteous act. That's his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. This one act results in justification and life for all people who accept it. Through his obedience and our faith, we're made righteous. We may suffer the consequences of sin here on earth, but God has given us a way out of ultimate death through Jesus Christ. If you're without Jesus this afternoon, maybe you feel like there's a curse on your life. Will you take him up on his offer of grace? I hope and I pray that you do. Sit down, open up the Bible with whomever brought you this morning and learn how the curse can be reversed in your life. God is still gracious and merciful, even as he punishes sin. And so the deception, Satan attacks God by trying to destroy us. He works by separating us relationally and getting us to rebel against the Lord. Don't fall victim to it like Eve. Be vigilant. Let's make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The fall sin is very serious and far reaching effects on our lives. This happened thousands of years ago. We're still paying the price. When we sin, it sends echoes into the future. And we have no idea how that's affecting our lives and other people's lives for generations and generations to come. And the consequences, we live in a fallen world and the wages of sin is death. That is our consequence. That's what we deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so even as he punishes sin, God is still merciful and gracious. Let's look to him for hope. Amen. Thank you.